The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. To the ghosts out in the hall. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. My first guest is Joan London. She hosted Good Morning America for almost two decades, making her the longest-running host of morning television. She's a journalist, a television personality, an entrepreneur, and a mother of seven, including two sets of twins. Uh, today we're going to be talking about her new line of healthy non-stick cookware called Twist, and that's spelled T-W-I-Z-T-T. My second guest is Dr. Dennis Tur. She's the Associate Director of the American Institute for Cognitive Therapy, founder and director of the Center for Mindfulness and Compassion-Focused Therapy. Uh, our topic today is holiday anxiety, and he's going to tell us uh, how to alleviate or ameliorate some of this holiday anxiety that we all suffer from. But first, Joan London, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. It's terrific to be with you again. Yeah. As I said, uh, it, great to talk to you again. I mean, I watch you on television all the time. But, okay, you've got this new product. You always have new products. You are It's, it's amazing. But Twist, T-W-I-Z-T-T. Question, well, what inspired you to launch Twist? You know, I was approached by a company out of Belgium with a new kind of nonstick cookware that was made with a ceramic coating instead of the old traditional coating, which is made with two very toxic chemicals. And we've been cooking on it for, what, four decades at least? Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, when it first came to America, like in the early 60s, it was like this huge phenomenon. All of a sudden you could crack an egg in the pan and slide it around, slide it out, easy cleanup. And it, it just provided so much convenience. But a few decades later we started learning that those chemicals are also associated with cancer, and more recently, we've learned that they're associated with Alzheimer's. Now the reports are that they may be responsible for higher cholesterol levels, lower birth weights in babies. But quite frankly, there's never been an alternative available. So I think a lot of us, you know, you see the reports now and then, but you kind of close your eyes and look the other way. But then you wonder when you put that pan on the stove and you turn the heat on, I mean, if you get up to 450, 500 degrees, which can happen in, a, in the blink of an eye in a minute, you, know, you, you turn around to the refrigerator to get something out and you come back, how many of us have seen those old pans bubble up, turn brown, and then you put your spatula in there and you scrape it off and we end up eating it. Yeah, and I ended up cutting into the pans. I guess I can yeah. say it. It was Teflon. I don't know if that's the generic name or that's the brand well, name. Well, that's one of the brand, that's the major brand that's name the major uh, that brand. uses PTFE and PFOA. And PTFE, it's like a waxy, hard substance that they then use this other persistent chemical, which means it takes at least 88 years to break down, called PFOA. It pollutes our earth. You know, they find it in polar bears on the North Pole when, the, when we know all the cookware is made in the Far East. And more importantly for us, though, when you get up to 
not a very high temperature. It starts to, to break down, decompose, melt. It releases toxic fumes. Anyone who's ever experienced this knows if you have a small bird in your kitchen and you don't open up your window, heating up one of those old pans can kill the bird. But people might not realize that they sometimes get what's called a polymer um, blue. And it kind of feels like you got the flu, quite frankly, nausea, headache, sometimes chills. And it's from the release of these fumes into your kitchen. And people just write them off, you know, oh, I must have eaten something bad. So, John, where is the EPA in all of this? Because as I'm listening, yeah, I'm listening yeah. to you, it sounds, I mean, obviously it's really toxic. And over time, all these chemicals, as you say, causes, and probably cancer, and you're saying Alzheimer's and all kinds of, of diseases. So what is the EPA doing or not? The EPA has been fighting the industry for decades. And but about in two thousand four or five they 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 basically said, Okay, no more. You you guys have got to stop using this and I we're gonna give you till two thousand fifteen to stop. Now unfortunately what a lot of the big companies did is they just immediately reformulated what they did. So instead of you know, PFOA is something called a carbonate, a C eight. They just reformulated it as a C six and brought it back out on the market. Now, what does that mean? It means that they sent the EPA back to the drawing board in, in going through all the testing. So it has not been – it's been very difficult for the EPA to try to get this off the market. And quite frankly, I think the only thing that's going to get these old, horrible pots and pans out of people's kitchens is for the consumer to see that finally the industry comes up with another way that you can still have that convenience but not have the health hazards associated with it. And I think that in five, six, seven years, as soon as as soon as people walk in to Bed Bath & Beyond, that's where we launched, and they look at all the fry pans, and we purposely made ours with a nice creamy white coating. All the others are like a black or dark charcoal yeah. because they know they're going to burn. They know they're going to burn. Yeah. Um, we purposely made ours look different so that I think when people start understanding that they can still have the convenience, you don't have to give it up, but there is now a healthy alternative. I think the American consumer will just make the choice. Yeah, because there's the a solution to the change. problem. It's simply not saying you can't use this, but with no replacement. But it, obviously your twist, T-W-I-Z-T-T, is a healthy alternative. And how did you – I mean, uh, my question is how did you come up with it? I mean, this is like really innovative, and this is obviously something that it seems to me would uh, would, would take off because – And I, you know something? It's not even – it's innovative. The whole line is innovative for a lot of other reasons. I mean, I'm going to tell you, when these people came to me, and they came to me because they knew I was a health advocate and that I'd been a journalist for decades in this country and that people would look to me as a reliable source – because they knew that this wasn't just putting new product on a market. This was educating the public. But, and I jumped across my desk. When I found out I could be part of this and, and help change the health of America, I, I jumped on board. But they then also brought on board this great um, award-winning cookware designer. And they basically sat him down and said, all right, pots and pans have looked the same for decades. They all look the same. They might be made of a different material, but they all pretty much function the same. How can you make pots and pans smarter and, and more convenient? And I got to tell you, every piece has a different twist in this line. The pots, like the sauce pots and casseroles, have little measurement markers inside that tell you how much you're putting in so you don't have to go get a measuring cup. The lids are all self-locking so that when you take a pot off the stove, with one hand you can walk over to the sink 
and you can drain the water out of it without the lid falling off. I mean, how many of us have had a had the spaghetti or the broccoli fall into the sink. Um, we give we sell all the pans with these pots with these beautiful melamine bowls that come in red or creamy white. And when you take the hot pot, you can take a hot casserole pot off the stove, drop it into this melamine bowl. It drops right in and sits on a little ledge, and put the top on. You can put it right on the on the table. You don't have to get out another serving dish to take the food and put it on a serving dish. So that's one less thing you have to wash at the end of the meal. John, and and it won't burn anybody. All right, two or three, actually more than two. You mentioned three or four different innovative parts of this design, which yeah. I find fascinating because all the things that you described, you know, the, the lid and, and, you know, the broccoli falling into the sink and not being able <laughs> to measure in the pot. I, as I'm listening to it, I'm thinking, boy, it's amazing that it took this long to be able to, to do this, to be able to solve these problems. So how did you actually, is it the cookware company? You developed this in conjunction with the cookware company. How did you come up with these designs? I mean, what was the process? I'm curious. You know, it's really been, it's been a two-year process, and um, it's been incredibly interesting for me. I traveled overseas. I went to the manufacturing plants. I wanted to know how they were made. I wanted to understand the whole process, and I got together with the cookware designer. And when he when he showed me the inside of the pot where they had the measurement <laughs> markers, I just looked at him and said, duh, that's like one of those things, like... Exactly. Did it really take this many decades to come up with that idea? Uh, so each, each, and then, and they actually took my suggestions, which was really also very cool. Um, you know, a few of the pans I wanted to make sure that uh, we put the, the nonstick coating in. Some of the sauce pots, they don't have to put that in. But they can all go into the oven, too, Catherine. So uh-huh. you can cook on top of the stove. And, you know, whatever you want to add, breadcrumbs, cheese, whatever it is, you can stick these things in the oven. And because they can be heated up to 850 degrees and not ever have any meltdown, you know you can safely put it into an oven and, and not have to have any worry. Yeah, so that's very versatile, and then you really yeah. don't have to use a microwave as often either. It makes it very easy, especially when you have a lot of guests over. I was thinking about Thanksgiving. I could have used them then. Uh, <laughs> but, Absolutely. Um, yeah. And also, you know, a lot of families these days, families aren't the same as they were four decades ago. Kids are coming in at different times from soccer practice or whatever, and to be able to put a pot on the, on the table and put the lid on it and have the food stay warm for two hours in addition to being great on a buffet table, it's also great just in everyday American life. So they're practical, well-designed, they look good. Um, and, and well-priced, Catherine. And well-priced. Oh, yeah, well, we haven't talked about price. Are we going to talk about price? Because obviously that's important. Well, um, we had to, you know, you have to if you're, going to if you're going to launch Nationwide and Bed Bath & Beyond. They are they make you come in at a really good affordable price. And frankly, that was one of the um, requirements that I gave this company in the beginning because I said, I, I'm one of those people who understands who my audience is comprised of. I, I knew it back when I was on Good Morning America. I see it now with all the selling I do on QVC. I know who they are. And they're not someone who wants to spend 160 bucks for one pan. You know, they, they, I mean, you can buy every piece in this whole set and come in at about $320. Um, and that's, you know, we have like a, a, a wonderful cast iron grill that you can sear on. Um, you know, it, it's, it's been designed so that the average person, the average consumer walking in can find it 
affordable. Yeah, because you, as you're right, sometimes you go in and you're looking at these these wonder pots, you know, and I'm not going to name the labels necessarily, but they're really way, way overpriced. I mean, you can pay $250 for one skillet. skillet and, and Oh, uh, I know. There are, there yeah. are a couple of well-known brands that are now catching on to this ceramic coating, but, I mean, you'll pay four or five times the amount to buy a similar pot in one of those lines. And I think that today the American consumer is really watching their pennies. And, you know, I, I really feel strongly that I don't want to go out and ask somebody to spend their hard-earned dollars on something and have it be overpriced. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a, a, a beautiful, as I say, beautiful looking, because as I'm talking to you, I'm also looking at it. There's a demonstration of you holding the pot. It is really well designed. What about, I mean, Jonah, you, do you have any other, is this going to be evolving and continuing with new, new different types of pots? I mean, you have, uh, you know, I don't know exactly how many are in the line right now, but will you continue to add to it? Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, I started getting into this um, Joan London home line a couple of years ago in bedding and throws and pillows. And now, you know, to be able to bring something to the public, though, as a health advocate, that, of course, excites me um, a lot. And we're going to continue to bring other products out in this line and other, you know, simple solutions for the kitchen. Yeah, I think what you just mentioned, the health line is so important. And I think, I mean, People are ready for it. I mean, I think people are ready. They are. The public is ready to listen now. It's sort of like the perfect storm because, you know, we are, you know, cancer rates are up and all of these diseases that you mentioned and all this stuff. And it is coming from somewhere. It's coming from the food we eat. It's coming from the pots and pans that we use. And I think that the public really is ready to hear it. So, I mean, coming out with this product now is is, is really, uh, you know, I think a very, it's obviously very positive, but a really good thing. As we see all these, uh, you know, the cancer and everything else, when you see it on the rise, I think we all kind of look at each other and say, come on. I mean, there's got to be something that we're eating, we're drinking. You know, little by little, we learned about plastics a couple of years ago, found out it was even the toxics were, toxins were even in our plastic baby bottles. And, and right now the audience, I think, is just absolutely primed to be informed and to be given a healthy alternative. Because, you know, I mean, I... I'll admit it, I've looked at some scrambled eggs before in a pan and said, huh, I don't think I use pepper in that. Did I use pepper? Yeah. And, you know, we see the little the little, little specks. And it's it's the toxic chemical that was used in the in the nonstick pan that has come off, and we're eating it in our food. And it's a scary thought, but they say that 98% of all Americans have PFO in them, and that every baby born in America today has PFOA in it. It's just, just, to me, that's startling. Yeah, and and it's startling, but not surprising, and I know that you... I guess not. Yeah, yeah. and and you and I are of the same generation, and and actually our mothers are very similar in age. Your mother's 93 years old. My mother's not quite 93. If I say it and she's listening, she'll be... (laughs) But she's almost there. And that generation didn't live with all of these toxic materials, yeah. and I think that's why they've lived so long. But then you take our generation and then the following ones and our kids, um, you know, surprise, surprise, when you breathe this stuff in and you eat it, as you say, you find these little specks. And I've had that happen to me. I find those specks, and I don't want to yep. do anything about it. I don't have time, so I just eat the eggs and I run, and, you know, I've eaten all these toxic uh, particles. And I got to tell you, when I met the the folks from this company, I I went back home and I opened up my cupboards under the under the stove area, and I couldn't believe how many of those 
old scratched up pans I had. I literally marched them all out and threw them away. This is way before we had any <laughs> samples to even test. Yeah. But I just felt so good to know that I'd gotten them out of my house and that I wasn't going to be subjecting my kids to them because you're right. It's that generation. I mean, it's incumbent upon us now to stop using, I mean, convenience is great, but we as a generation have to figure out healthy alternatives and, and make this change. Yeah. And, and you mentioned before also, I mean, you have, you'll find all of this, these chemicals in the bloods of, uh, you know, pregnant women. I mean, and so obviously. Well, that's why yeah. all of our babies are born, you know, with this chemical in it. And the PFOA is something called a persistent chemical which makes it even that more egregious. It takes at least 88 years for it to break down. You know, and when they do these studies as far away as, as Alaska and find PFOA in polar bears, and you, we all know that these things are, are made so far away, it really brings home just how pervasive these chemicals are as they go into the rivers out of the and believe me they've been made in the united they're they're used in the united states as well and these big companies have been fined millions of dollars um for for dumping them into our rivers and then they go into our oceans and you know we have to take ownership of of what we're doing to this planet of ours yeah and and now i mean with products like what your you know your product this product we have a choice i mean we finally yeah we finally have a choice yes it, and, it is a long time coming because i will say to you i do remember 25 maybe 30 years ago uh-huh. as a journalist doing these studies i mean i announced the studies that were being done i mean we've known for maybe 3 decades that this causes cancer and it's taken this long for the industry, you know, to kind of come up with an alternative. And for now, it'll be incumbent upon the EPA to try to wrestle that alligator, yeah, you know, and and somehow get all those old products off the market. But it's going to take a few years. So, Joan, what's been the response of the industry? Number one, and then number two, the response of your family, because you you do, you know, not only are you an entrepreneur and a journalist and television personality, but you are a mom, which I think is the most important thing. Yep. A mom of seven children, including two sets of twins, amazing. So, <laughs> first of the business world, and then kind of second of your of your own family. I think in the industry, we are going to see. Um, I seriously think it will. It won't take more than five, six years for the whole industry to change over. As I said, a couple of the you know uh, higher end brands have caught on. They have started using the ceramic. Coating. I mean, they're just very, very expensive. But now that um, we have some lines that are economically priced, I think the whole industry will change. It's not going to, you know, some of these big companies that that produce the old nonstick pans. I mean, they're going to fight to the bitter end. But um, but the change may come via the consumer's vote before we see the EPA um, really truly get it off the market in a legislative way. You know, I forgot to ask you one question. How heavy are they? Are they- They're not real heavy. Um, at the same time, it, we used a really good gauge stainless steel with an encapsulated aluminum bottom because aluminum is the best heat conductor. Um, but you want, you know, nobody wants to pick up a pan that's, that weighs absolutely nothing because what happens, and I'll explain this and everyone's going to say, oh, that's why. When you get a flimsy pan that's made out of, you know, a, a, a lesser expensive aluminum or even a lesser expensive stainless steel, and you put it on the hot fire, you put it on top of your stove, 
what happens is that when the, when the heat comes up, all pans are made kind of concave, meaning they're not actually flat down on the surface. They're actually made kind of concave. And the reason why is when you set them on a hot uh, stove, it kind of pulls the bottom of the pan down Now, so that it sits flat. But what happens is people superheat those pans up, and then they say, oh, I've got to take it over and stick it under the sink in the cold water. It's the worst thing you can ever do to a pan because it literally, like, freezes it in that down, that kind of um, uh, convex kind of down position, and then you stick it back on the stove, and it's like you find it's going, it, um, it rattles around. It won't sit flat anymore. And a lot of people will say, I have a bunch of pans just like that. Well, you can't take a pan from a hot stove to the cold water, particularly if it's made of an inexpensive material. So we actually went up a few grades, and we used a a good quality stainless steel. So you feel like when you pick up the pan that it's it's a good quality pan, but at the same time, they had me test a lot of different ones, and I said, I don't want a real heavy pan. I mean, I have to use these things every single night. And so, you know, there's a, you have to kind of walk that line, make them convenient so that people can use them every day. We wanted them to be able to go over with one hand, pick it up with a – we have a stay-cool handle, a stainless steel hollow handle that's riveted on so that it doesn't heat up like the pot, so you don't have to be afraid to – grab a hold of it, and we wanted you to be able to take a woman. We wanted a woman to be able to take it with one hand and drain it out over the sink comfortably, and I think that we achieved that. Yeah, so you have a balance between being a very substantial stainless steel but light enough so that a woman, and you don't have to be really strong, can handle it easily. Um, And I think that's important because I'm thinking, you know, with the baby boomers and the aging population, you have people that's a whole big, who are doing a lot of cooking and continue to do a lot of cooking, but maybe aren't quite as strong as they used to be. um, So, you know, it works for them as well as, well, I guess the whole demographics of, of, and men are cooking now, well, maybe they're stronger, I don't know, but um, yeah, so that's, so it's, it's substantial. Not too light, but not too heavy, I guess. I love it as a gift because it's not only a, a pretty a pretty set of of cookware that you can use every day, but it's also a health gift. It's a gift of health, and to me, that's to me what we're giving to our children when we make this changeover is the most important thing we can give them, which is a healthy start to life. Your kids must be proud of you for developing this. <laughs> I know your oldest daughter is thirty. Um, yes, and getting married in January. Congratulations. And another daughter of mine, um, Lindsay, who just got married in August, actually works with my company and travels all over the country with me and is very involved in all of my health advocacy. And it's, it's really great to have, you know, one of your, your children be able to kind of uh, join, join that force that you want to, uh, to use in America for, to help inform people and help them make better decisions in their life every day. Yeah, I mean, this is a... Good decision, good choices. I, 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 when I'm looking at the picture, I see red. Is it in one color? Is it the red and the stainless steel? Is that what the color scheme is? It, you can buy it either in red or white, and those are the two top-selling colors. I mean, we didn't just arbitrarily pick them. They are the two top-selling colors in cookware in America. So, you know, you always go for... You know, that pop of red, if that happens to go in their kitchen. Otherwise, the ivory, you know, when you see the inside of the fry pans, you know, the the, not, the ceramic coating, 
I, I mean, we chose that for a reason because we wanted to really differentiate ourselves from from the rest of the industry. But the other reason is that when you, you know, they say that more people buy ivory or white plates than any other color. And the reason why is people like to look at their food on an ivory background or a white background. It just makes the food more tantalizing and more appetizing. And when you crack an egg or you are sauteing broccoli inside of one of these pans, it's pretty. You know, it, it just looks pretty. It's, I mean, I'm, enjo- I'm really enjoying cooking on that that light surface. Well, those are my colors. I mean, so I'm, I'm I, you know, I have uh, red accents, and I, I love it. That's why I love the looks of these pots as well, of course, is, uh, you know, the uh, how you use them. But still, that is, yeah, it looks really good. And I have a stainless steel kitchen with kind of the, the red accents. So they oh, yeah. Like it. Oh, good, good. Yeah, it's great. We have a minute left, so let's, get, you know, give information about uh, where uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, you can purchase the pots, um, website that listeners can and, go to. Yes, also, and of course, bedbuttonbeyond.com. They could go on. A lot of it these days is is also purchased online. And if they really want more information, right, joanlondon.com. Great. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much. Always good to talk to you. Always good to talk to you, Joan. Good luck. I'll talk to you again. Okay, thanks. Thank Bye-bye. you. Joan London, uh, what a great product. Uh, we're going to take a short break right now, but coming up next is... Uh, Dr. Dennis Turch, he's a Ph.D., he's a psychologist, and we're going to be talking about holiday anxiety. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. In the spirit of Have Couch Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune into Goddard Design every week for everything that is arts, interior design, and architecture. Host Chris Goddard will help you explore and invite creativity into your life. Our guests will include industry leaders and insiders who take you through the entire world of design and its many facets. You may not be immediately aware, but design is involved in nearly everything we do, from homes to clothing to food and drink. Tune into Goddard Design every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And as I said earlier... You can listen to us live every Wednesdays, 10 to 11. That's Eastern Time, but at the end of the day, we also archive the show. My next guest is Dr. Dennis Tersh. He's a Ph.D., a psychologist, associate director of the American Institute for Cognitive Therapy, and uh, he has a new book called The Compassionate Mind Guide to Overcoming Anxiety, Using Compassion-Focused Therapy to Calm Worry, Panic, and Fear, and I guess specifically we're, we're going to be talking about holiday anxiety because it seems people get really anxious during the holidays. We're going to find out why. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Tersh. Well, thanks very much for having me, Catherine. I'm glad to be here. Can I call you Dennis? Yes, I prefer it. Thanks. Good. Great. Okay, so we're going to be talking about book, holiday anxiety. I guess what do we want to start with? First of all, the definition of anxiety. What's The definition of anxiety, I mean, because anxiety is not fear, it's not depression, it's not panic, uh, it has a a different definition, and um, so let's start with that. Well, I think probably for our purposes today, we can understand anxiety as the activation of our threat detection system in our bodies and in our brains, uh, even when there isn't an imminent threat. And anxiety is something that, as we know, activates many different systems from our, our hormonal systems to our brains to our behavioral systems. And we're sort of on guard, uh, ready for threat, uh, accelerated with a narrow focus of attention. And it's a very important part of our lives, but unfortunately it gets activated all too often and perhaps all too intensely for us. All right, so- Dennis, when is anxiety good for us and when is it not good for us? When does it become counterproductive? Because as you say, I mean, in some cases, and maybe we should just give kind of, you know, a, a layman's kind of definition, but anxiety is good because it prevents us from doing things perhaps that are dangerous uh, or things that um, keeps us from engaging in, in dangerous behavior, let's say, mm. um, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, uh, a lot of the work that we do is really grounded in uh, evolutionary science. And if we, if we think in those terms, we can recognize that uh, human beings have been designed by evolution to have this always-on, better-safe-than-sorry, 24-7 threat detection system. And uh, as a result, it's a very good thing because our ancestors could uh, stay alive, they could be prepared to face the challenges they met and and in our in our everyday lives, anxiety can 
and keep us free from danger and, and kind of keeps us aware of our surroundings and really is very essential. And in fact, as we also know, anxiety in, uh, to a certain degree even increases our performance. So like a little bit of stage fright or a little bit of anxiety before taking a test tends to galvanize our attention and, and we really, we really uh, perform uh, highly. So when do we cross the red line, and I'm calling it a red line, when this anxiety like becomes, becomes counterproductive because we're overreacting or it's not going to be helpful, such as it is like if you're going to give a speech or take a test or do some kind of a performance or be on stage or whatever you're going to do. But at what point does it become not a good thing when we have to kind of keep it in check or we should? I think that's a it's a it's a very important question. It's something that people sort of need to reflect on uh, each individual in their own lives in their own context. But as a general rule, when anxiety becomes uh, significant enough that it starts to make our lives a little bit smaller, we start to avoid things. We get tangled up in trying to deal with it, we focus on it too much, or when we're in really significant distress about our anxiety, or when we're in you know, a significant impairment in our ability to live our lives, that's kind of the place where we, we really recognize anxiety as a problem. All right, so now the next question, obviously, is what do we do about it? And I, I think you have tips, and I'm assuming these are in your book, tips yeah. to identify if you actually are suffering from anxiety, which is counterproductive. Um, so just, you know, and, and what do we specifically, here's the third question. I'm going to get them all in at once. Awesome. And, and then holiday anxiety, what is that? But, okay, first, how do we, how do we, at what point, how do we know that we're just kind of overreacting? Well, I think one of the things to really ask ourselves is, uh, are are we living our lives in a way that feels like true to us with meaning, purpose, and vitality? Are we, uh, or are we waiting for our lives to start? Are we giving things up in the service of anxiety? Like if there's a holiday party and we'd like to be there, we'd like to meet people, but our anxiety tells us we're going to be rejected so we stay home. Or, or if we, you know, would really like to take a, uh, maybe your niece or nephew to a ball game and the fear of having a panic attack limits us. Or if someone has obsessive compulsive disorder and they're spending hours of their lives, you know, wrapped up in checking to see if they're contaminated. You know, those are those kind of signals that, okay, I'm really losing some of the precious, you know, uh, time I have on earth to just to, to sort of the tyranny of this anxious mind. So once you notice that, you can begin to do something about it. And there are you know, as in the book, from a compassion sort of focused approach, there are many ways that we can come into a healthier relationship with anxiety and begin to deal with it in a productive way. All right, you're talking about calming worry, panic, fear, mm -hmm. anxiety. Um, as I understand it, the number one, in the United States anyway, the number one uh, thing that we worry about are finances, and number two is health. Now, I'm not sure if that's that jives with, with your research or mm -hmm. not, but let, let's take finances. Um, I mean, I, what do we do about that? I mean, I think most people, most Americans, particularly now, worry about finances. Uh, well, I think it, particularly in compassion-focused therapy, we begin by recognizing that, that in a very, in, in, from a certain point of view, the things that we face, the anxiety that we deal with is not our fault. We didn't choose to be here. We didn't choose the circumstances of our birth. We didn't choose our learning history. And so much of who we are has been determined by what has gone uh, 
you know, in our, in our past. And uh, we can also recognize that we're primed, you know, we're primed to feel very anxious about these things, and life is very difficult, and suffering is a really fundamental part of life. So when we notice the nature of the condition that we find ourselves in, we can also recognize that we've evolved to feel soothed, to feel empowered, and to feel a sense of security when we're in the presence of loving uh, and kind, supportive others. Throughout, throughout our lives, from the day we're born, our relationship with supportive others will form uh, our ability to regulate our anxiety. Now, what we can do through compassion-focused therapy and systematically training the compassionate part of our mind is we can learn to direct that compassion inwards. We can learn to use uh, mindfulness practices, meditative practices, imagery exercises to deliberately stimulate the part of our brain that regulates anxiety through feelings of self-kindness, warmth, and support. And as I understand it, if we are able to do that, we can actually change our brain chemistry or brain patterns. I mean, that whole uh, concept or that whole uh, science of neuroplasticity, like if we do that and use those kinds of exercises that you're talking about using compassion-focused therapy, that we will eventually automatically change our response. Our brain will respond differently. We won't become anxious over those things that we previously were anxious about that were counterproductive. Well, this is an excellent point, Catherine. We know now that because of the way the brain functions, the way it is constantly, literally, physically reinventing itself through neuroplasticity that when we develop new skills, new perspectives, new attributes, that our brain physically changes. So if I uh, study the violin and I practice very, uh, very long and very hard over a long period of time, my brain begins to resemble the brain of a violinist. New regions are strengthened, new patterns of activity, but also actually new neural connections are formed. And it's the same thing with compassion. When we train ourselves in self-compassion, and just a brief definition of compassion, which is worth saying, is that compassion is a sensitivity to and an awareness of suffering in ourselves and in others, combined with a desire to alleviate that suffering. So if we practice compassion and we cultivate our compassionate mind, we're actually changing our brains. So, I mean, I think that most people, I mean, this is kind of like a new, I don't know if it's really new, this, this whole, mm -hmm. but I think the general public or the, are, are starting to become aware of this. And as they do, I think it really um, it behooves us to realize that we can make other choices when it comes to, like, worry and fear and, and anxiety, and we have control over it. We don't have to be in therapy for 10 years or five years or whatever it is and, and spend so much time and money doing that. But it, you can do things it's in a – can't we do it in a much more short-term uh, time frame? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, different wisdom traditions and philosophies and inner traditions of our religions have been aware that training the mind in compassion is very, very helpful. And we've known that throughout the world for thousands of years. However, you know, uh, mental health, psychology, psychotherapy, and uh, the medical establishment is just beginning to recognize through research that we can systematically train this part of our brain, this part of our mind, and that, you know, in as little as a few weeks with regular practice, 
we can uh, learn to more easily bring online this kind of soothing effect of compassion and, and change our lives. Self-compassion, I had never heard that term used before. Um, you know, I always, it was always compassionate, uh, to, compassion towards others, but never really thinking about it. How about compassion towards yourself? So now you personally, I mean, you're the psychologist, you've written the book, you're the expert. What do you, what do, you do for yourself? I mean, is this something that you practice every day? It actually very much is something that I practice every day, and the practice of self-compassion and compassion for others, cultivating that part of the mind, was something that led me to become a psychologist because my uh, history with Buddhist practice of uh, meditation and imagery uh, I found was really healing for me in dealing with you know difficult experiences from life, from childhood, self-criticism, and, and all of these things. And a few years ago when I met Dr. Paul Gilbert, who's the founder of Compassion Focused Therapy, uh, I was really uh, moved by the way that he had integrated a Western scientific approach with the very same sort of practices that I'd been exposed to in Buddhist practice. So, you know, I mean, when I wake up, I have a daily practice of gratitude and uh, compassion that I'll engage in. And at different times during the day, there are compassionate mind training practices. And I'm kind of lucky because my job is to work with clients and, and people who are dealing with their own struggles through self-compassion. So throughout the day, there's time to do these practices in real time with my clients. So it's, it's one of the nice aspects of, of the work that we do here is that we get to kind of drop into a space of mindfulness and compassion consistently throughout the day. So are you the most calm person that I could meet or that we could meet? <laughs> you should be if you're doing this day in and day out. <laughs> I wish that were the case. That would be wonderful. You know, I think part of the answer to that question is that all of us have these many different parts of ourselves. We all have an anxious self. We all have an angry self. We all have a compassionate self. And different things will trigger these parts of ourselves uh, and that's kind of what makes us human. Just really briefly, this is like this sort of funny story about the difference between humans and other animals. You know, so if I were a, if I were a zebra and I was at the watering hole and a lion came to just like try to, you know, have me for lunch and I managed to escape, for a few minutes I would be in threat mode. And then very quickly, like every other mammal, every other complex mammal, very quickly, within a few minutes, my anxiety system would tamp down and I would go about my business doing zebra things. But I'm a human. So as a human, if I were in that situation, I would have this capacity to think into the future and worry and self-criticize and, you know, ruminate. So maybe uh, later that night, if the zebra had a human brain, I would be thinking, um, oh, I wonder if I'm a good enough zebra. How will my kids get into zebra college? Will I be able to, uh, you know, survive the next day? And, and we stay in those anxious states of mind. So what I am really grateful for is that, you know, when I'm exposed to the things that trigger me, um, I'm able to kind of come back to a place of self-compassion and kind of connect with what really matters. And, you know, a little bit, a little bit every day, you know, gradually we develop this capacity to calm ourselves. But all of us, I mean, I've heard tell, I can't confirm this, but even the Dalai Lama has his days where he's a grumbly, frustrated, angry person. You know, I mean, I think <laughs> we all have it in us. 
But we all have it in us, and I think also I think, um, and I, I think I mentioned it on, on, a, on another show that I did this week, but uh, with a, a psychologist, there's a lot of uh, stuff that comes external stuff that comes from the outside that we're bombarded with every day. I mean, this is no surprise, but, uh, you know, the news, the Internet, television, iPads, iPods, everything else. And it you really, uh, for me anyway, some days I will, and I, I don't know if this would be part of your program, but have to wake up in the morning and decide I am not going to turn on any of this stuff because it really does make me anxious. Uh, it exposes me to so many different kinds of negative things that I can't really deal with. I don't have any control over it, yet I get concerned about it. So I kind of have to just turn the whole thing off. I mean, I don't know if that's a healthy thing to do or not. Well, you know, what is really beautiful, Catherine, about what you're describing there is the choice that you're making. Because so often our behaviors are really patterned. They're really habitual. They're determined by the very tricky brain that we have, that we've evolved to have. They're determined by our learning histories, and you're describing the ability to step back from your experience, which involves what we call mind, what we would call in our work mindfulness, and be a you know, popular concept now, to be mindful and aware and connecting with the present moment, to be stepping back from our habitual patterns and making a choice. And you're also describing compassionate action, self-compassionate action. Like, and sometimes that involves refraining from something, kind of saying, you know what? I'm aware, I'm awake in this moment, and I can make this choice to step out of my programming and maybe I can not subject myself to this kind of barrage of uh, imagery. Yeah, I did that on vacation a few months ago, and I decided I wasn't going to respond to any of my emails and I wasn't going to respond to any of my voicemail. And this was probably for three days, and I can't tell you the response I got when I got, unless it was an emergency and none of it was. So I got back into town, and I had so many people, where were you? You didn't respond. Are you okay? Did I do something? And I, I simply said, no, I just I decided I wasn't going to, I'm on vacation, and I wasn't going to react, and uh, that was it. But they were, I have to say, the people that I, friends, family, colleagues, were really shocked that I didn't respond, so... That's a real departure, isn't it? I mean, you're really stepping out of the machine and people sort of, oh, wait a minute, what's going on? I mean, one of the things that's really amazing, particularly around the holidays, about what you described is that, um, and I really appreciate your decision there and your your action that you've taken. Uh, You know, we we didn't, uh, our brains were not designed for this sort of environment by our evolutionary history at all. Like we, 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 our brains haven't caught up with our technology, our societies. We're, we're kind of designed to be in these small groups of people with closer affiliative bonds with, you know, not that many images of competition or social threat or stimulation. And, you know, right here in Manhattan where I work on 57th and Lexington, like, the walk that my client will take to their cab or their train, they'll pass more images uh, of uh, social competition, of status, of sexuality, of aggression, and it, it, not even just on their phone, just in the buildings around them and on their smartphone, on the little TV in the back of the cab if they're in a cab. And, and we're just not designed for that kind of overstimulation. So uh, it's really not our fault that we get as activated as we are. And your wonderful example of having awareness, having mindfulness of how you're being affected by your environment and stepping back from it and practicing compassionate action, I think is really cool. So what do you 
give us a prediction for the future. What do you think? I mean, as you, I think you just said the word barraged, and that's really what it is. We are assaulted and barraged with all of this stuff. Is it going to get worse? Are we really going to, do you think most people be able to take your advice, read your book, go to the website, and, and, actually, and really practice this? I mean, you know, en masse, because I think we need to do that. But, or are we just going to get more barraged with, the, with all of this external stimuli? Well, you know, I choose to be hopeful for us as a species, and I think that we, uh, if we look at the history of human beings and how we became who we are, sometimes great tragedies, great calamities, like stronger climate change than we're even experiencing now, or shifts in environments, uh, have have caused human beings to adapt and develop new ways of operating and new ways of being in the world. And, you know, there's so much to look around at and feel uh, frustrated by in, 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 in our experience of anxiety and in our society. But there's also so much to be encouraged by. Like even our having this conversation and the accessibility of these kind of methods on a much wider scale I think speaks to the positive side of the, the, the sort of excessive and also wonderful flow of information. So I choose to be uh, hopeful and I uh, have uh, confidence in people like yourself and, and other people who take part in this discussion about wellness. And I think that's, that's kind of what it's all about. So it's really critical to develop these new coping skills because... Yeah, I think on an individual level and on a social level for the ideas like compassion, to recognize that compassion isn't soft, that compassion isn't about being easy, that it's about having courage and resilience and strength. I mean, compassion emerges from our evolved caregiver uh, instinct. It's, it's part of our natural emotion regulation systems, and the more we're able to cultivate compassion and wisdom, the saner societies we can have. So what has been the response to your book? Well, so far, I've had a really a lot of positive feedback about it uh, from some of my colleagues whom I really respect and my clients and, and, and readers. And I think what people have said about it, which is, it makes me very happy because it's what I aim to do, is that it presents these ideas in a really friendly, warm, and direct way. You know, like we're having a chat, like we're going to sit down together and we're systematically and kind of in, in easy, simple terms, kind of walk through and wade out into how we can find our feet and establish a compassionate relationship to our emotions, a compassionate relationship to ourselves and others, and uh, build lives that feel more meaningful to us. And that, and that feels really important to me. Yeah, I think that's critical. I think that should be all of our goals, and obviously you're helping us to overcome, to, to be able to do that. Uh, let's, a couple more minutes left, so um, there is a website that we can go to, mindfulcompassion.com. Mm-hmm. Now, is that about the book, or what will we, you know, is it about, uh, what is the website? Well, mindfulcompassion.com is a website that is always kind of changing and growing, and it is my own personal website for myself as a psychologist and also for the center that I run, which does trainings and such. I think what's of most use to readers of the book is that the exercises in the book and a number of other ones are all uh, mapped out there for free download. So you can kind of, as you work through the book, 
you can go to mindfulcompassion.com and download a guided uh, meditation exercise which accompanies um, the work you would be doing. So if you're practicing the book systematically, it's all there. And also if you wanted to just get a taste of what a mindfulness practice was like or what compassionate mind training was like, you can kind of listen in and get an introduction to that kind of work. So the, the website is connected to the book and, and to all of the work that you're doing. Uh, one last question. Are you giving lectures? In, uh, do, do you lecture across the country about the book, about uh, um, compassion? Yes, actually, we do workshops. Uh, Paul Gilbert, the founder of Compassion Folks Therapy, and I do uh, workshops here and and abroad. Uh, Here is New York City, right? Here in New York City and and, and in the States. And uh, Paul will be on the West Coast in San Francisco in February. And in uh, the spring, I believe in April, I'll be doing a a workshop, a two-day workshop with a couple of other psychologists in Compassion, Kristen Neff and Chris Germer. And we're kind of putting together the 2013 calendar now, but I really love doing the workshops because it really uh, allows like a room full of people to practice together and kind of connect with um, these experiences that are that are part of the exercises in yeah. real time. Well, yeah, then you get all the feedback from your audience, which is fantastic. Well, thanks so much for being on this show this morning. We've been talking to Dr. Dennis Tersh, Ph.D., psychologist, author of The Compassionate Mind Guide to Overcoming Anxiety, using compassion-focused therapy, which is what we've been talking about today, to calm worry, panic, and fear. And you can go to his website, Dr. Tersh's website, at mindfulcompassion.com. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Catherine. Great talking to you. We are going to say goodbye. You've been listening to Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone on the Catherine Zox Show, VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a, a great week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.